Hi everyone, welcome to This is Lasan, a podcast where we bring you stories from a diverse array of creators working to create positive change in the Lasan community and beyond. So sit back, relax, be inspired, and learn something new with us. Today we are joined by a very special guest, PhD student and researcher Shamira Andres. Shamira has traveled all around the world for both her work and education in Earth and Space Science and Engineering. She's worked with organizations such as the European Space Agency, NASA, and the Canadian and Italian Space Agencies. She was also awarded a doctorate scholarship through the Cotutel program. We will talk about her journey and her research as she explores glacier formations on Mars. All right, Shamira, it's really cool to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to talk to someone about my research and about what I do and to share what I love, science. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to get into your research, but before that, you know, we'd like to know a little bit more about you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, of course. So um, my name is Shamira Andres, and I'm a PhD student, first year PhD student in the Lausanne School of Engineering under the Earth and Space Science Program. Um, my supervisor is Dr. Isaac Smith, uh, but before starting my PhD, I actually just finished a young graduate traineeship at the European Space Agency in the, the Netherlands, in Europe. So just coming back from that, I literally just finished my master's right before that also. I, I went to the University of Western Ontario in London. Um, so that was really cool, but I did my undergrad at McMaster University um, in the Integrated Science Program, which has such a close um, spot in my heart because that's kind of where I got my love for science got molded even more um, and my love for space kind of like um, was ignited. So yeah, I like that's kind of my academic background, uh, but in terms of just other things that I like to do. I've been dancing since I was four years old. So I've been doing contemporary ballet, jazz, hip hop. And now I've been kind of teaching that. So I'm also, as a, I double as a freelance contemporary ballet dancer based in Toronto um, on top of my PhD. But I also like to communicate science. So I'm part of the Canadian Association Girls in Science, so CAGIS. And I also like doing a lot of science communication talks and speakers um, speaker sessions for um, the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, so RASC, um, and sometimes the uh, Ontario uh, Science Centre. So yeah, I just really love talking about science and I get really excited, especially in particular if it's about space and Earth. So yeah, that's me. All right, well, that's good because you know, I've been reading up on your research and you're probably going to have to teach me quite a bit. <laughs> oh yeah, but, no problem. <laughs> but yeah, you were saying um, you love talking about you know Earth and space. How did you know that was a path you wanted to choose? Did you know since you were a little kid? Um, when I was younger, I always said that I've always wanted to be an astronaut and I've stuck to that since I was four years old, but I also wanted to be a dancer. So like a dancing astronaut. <laughs> um, so I wanted to combine my love for STEM and the arts and I just didn't know how to do that. So I had a hard time in undergrad choosing if I really wanted to do science, engineering or arts like performance. Um, but in the end, I chose science uh, because I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. <laughs> so the program that I got accepted to when I was an undergrad was, it's called Integrated Science or ISI. And it's basically all the sciences combined because I thought that fit me best because I didn't know what I was doing and I loved all of them. But it wasn't until I took a trip 
um, I took a course to Iceland. It was um, a course in the summer called the land of fire and ice. And you're just learning about the ecology of Iceland, the rocks in Iceland, the glaciers. And I think I was lucky to that this trip happened in my after my first year of undergrad, because after I went there, I stood on a glacier and I was like, this is what I want to study for the rest of my life. And I, I, I don't know, it just kind of like sparked that little kid in me that I want to do this every day and just be outside and have my laboratory as outside and I just had to find ice in space and I combined essentially all my passions and I think I was just lucky that that the timing worked out and I realized I had that realization at that point but I didn't know what I wanted to do but that's how I chose what I wanted to do. (laughs) That's amazing I can sort of imagine you just standing on the glacier like like almost like in a movie and saying like yeah this is what I want yeah no it's honestly if you've ever seen a mountain in front of you it's different when you're on the mountain so like whenever you go on a hike it's always like oh the end of the hike is the best part it's worth it but I think like looking back now like this is going to be a little deep but like in grad school looking up on my mountain which is like my research it's like looking back at what I where I started it's like really cool to see that that got me here but yeah and obviously all my mentors and all of like my professors that inspired me and taught me everything I knew and all the grad students that I learned from they're like literally my inspiration (laughs) so uh, you were talking about Iceland right yeah but from what I've read it sounds like you've traveled a lot in your work I remember I read Peru Netherlands, uh, the US. So you know I know this is supposed to be you know for education and for work but I bet it was also fun right yeah It's honestly, I think just the coincidence that the field of work that I chose is outside where there's glaciers. So I have to find where there's glaciers or permafrost. So unfortunately that's not in Toronto (laughs) or in my lab. Um, It's kind of a unique niche field because um, geology in general is studying out rocks and how the earth formed. So technically you have to be outside learning and collecting all your data. Um, whereas if it's geochemistry, you'd probably collect samples and also analyze them in your lab, which I also do, not specifically geochemistry, but just remote sensing. So I have days in the lab where I'm like just in my computer, uh, where I look at satellite images and I process them. So it's a long, tedious process, but the traveling is kind of just a complement to the research. It's not the main focus of the research. I think it's just like every year, every summer mostly, because that's where the, the ideal um time to visit these places are especially in the arctic or in alpine regions in the andes or something like that the summer is usually where um, you collect all your data and then you have the whole year to basically take a look at that what you collected and understand it and remember what you did there and make your research out of that they have different purposes too so we don't just go to different countries for fun um, obviously so we go to different sites because there's something unique about that one site versus the rest of the world that we had to go to that one. All right, amazing. But not only that, I've also read that before you did your PhD work, you did work with the European Space Agency? Yeah, yeah, I, I mentioned that a little bit, but yeah, I can talk about, about that more if you want. Yeah, what kind of work did you do with them? Yeah, so after my master's, I applied for this position called the Young Graduate Trainee, and it's a YGT for short, so I'll refer to that. but. Essentially, you can only apply to this program after you've completed a master's. And so that was kind of the prime time for anyone doing a master's degree, um, graduating with a master's degree to apply. Um, And that 
Um, the European Space Agency is an agency in Europe. The European Space Agency has a lot of facilities in different countries in Europe. So the main one that, that I worked at is called STEC. Uh, so it's the main technology one, uh, the branch of technology for the European Space Agency, and that's in the Netherlands, in Nordvik. And there's also other ones. So ESRIN, these are acronyms that I'm not really familiar with the entire name, but ESRIN specializes on Earth observation. And then there's also the headquarters, which is in Paris. Um, so there's a lot of them spread out everywhere and the education slash um, satellite facilities also in Belgium. There's just a lot of countries in Europe that cover all the bases of the European Space Agency. But when I worked at STEC in the Netherlands, I did a young graduate traineeship in Earth observation and education. So I kind of combined my love for science communication because I really wanted to learn how to teach and how to make resources properly, especially for space, because space in general, you can use it as a hook to tell people, oh, there's life on Mars, but to teach the actual science and the fundamentals of space is very different. There's also like arts in space. So all the pictures that we see of the new JWST telescope and all the galaxies, you know, they're all portrayed and artist renditions of things get created. So there's a lot of interdisciplinary work that's done in space, which is why I love it so much, but for my specific job, I worked with teachers all around Europe. I worked with students to create programs. I worked with most of the directorates in space technology, as well as earth observation and ESA, so that we can collaborate on little projects. And we sent our code to space to run in the ISS. Uh, so I run that workshop here in Canada now still uh, with Kegis. And then I also did some projects about climate and just kind of raising awareness on this current situation of space, but in younger generations to inspire them and also to help teachers teach this, which the European Space Agency has a very robust program for it. So I was really like proud and happy to work with them on these projects for the entire year. But I was going to stay for another year because the maximum limit is to stay for two years, but I had to start my PhD. <laughs> so I had already like... Um, kind of deferred it for a year to work for the European Space Agency. So um, I was just really excited to go back and do research and do my PhD. So yeah, I guess it really highlights the importance how in science, it's not just about discovery, but how to communicate those discoveries to yeah. everybody. Yeah, because if you don't communicate the science properly, or if your grandma can understand it, then how are you going to explain it to a little kid? So there's a lot of like exercises even that you can try to explain what you're doing for research with a politician, with your professor, with a seven-year-old kid, with your grandma. So it's a very different perspective um, and extents of knowledge. So you have to kind of understand and be empathetic towards how you communicate your own work. So would you say that opportunity with the European Space Agency, is that the one that's stood out the most to you in your journey? Or is there something even more? I think that for sure is a highlight, especially in my early career in academia. I knew I really wanted to stay in academia and do research, but I didn't know that until I left it. To understand kind of why I wanted to do what I wanted to do, I had to get some experience from industry. And then after that, I came back more eager to learn about what I'm doing and what I'm proposing as my PhD, eager to learn more about Mars and ICE. But I think the experience really is the people that I've met along the way, you know, like it's not about the title of the job that I did or like the masters that I finished. I think it's essentially like 
meeting the different people, meeting the different PIs of different missions. Like I was having like dinners with the director general of ESA and the Canadian Space Agency. And I was just like so humbled by the experiences. Space is such a small world, but it's also like a really multidisciplinary one. There's like space for everyone in space. Does that make sense? (laughs) I like that space for everyone in space. Yeah. So now let's shift focus to talking about your research about glaciers on Mars. Yeah. So I I know you and your research team just solved a longstanding mystery about the composition of Mars's famous polar transformations. So can you tell us a little, okay, well, a lot more (laughs) about it? I wasn't actually part of the team that um, discovered it per se. It was another grad student, but I think you're talking about a few different ones. There's the most recent one, Um, is a mystery because um, my supervisor, Dr. Isaac Smith, actually just published a paper about CO2 glaciers, so um, that are flowing on Mars. So CO2 glaciers on Mars are quite common in the South Pole. So there's two polar caps on Mars, one in the North um, and one in the South, and they have different characteristics. So the one in the South is the one that he characterized to have CO2 glaciers that are flowing, and he actually characterized the timing of the layers forming as well. So that's, and then kind of explained why, that's why CO2 is forming because there's alternating H2O and then CO2, and then it disappears a little bit and then H2O, CO2, and then some disappear. And then it kind of builds this kind of big blob of CO2 bulldozing following the slope and the elevation downhill. So there's more science to it, but I'm not as familiar as he is because he published the, that paper. But there's also another discovery, or I guess it was a rebuttal paper that was published because I don't know if you've heard about the subglacial lakes that were discovered in, in on Mars, like under the poles. They said that there were lakes underneath of water. And was that true? It could be true, but it could also not be true. So there's no way to distinctively say that it's not true, but what our lab had done is they essentially um, used dielectric properties of ice and of that specific area where they discovered the radar um, in the South Pole, where the reflection of the subglacial lake was very strong. They tried to do um, dielectric constants and also reflectivity constants of um, a different material that were just ice, frozen by ice. So like clay with ice and different types of clay with ice. And they found that it was actually the same return or the same kind of reflection. Um, so they, it could be a subglacial lake or it could just be frozen rock. <laughs> okay, so, so it's not completely, like it, the, the conclusion is not completely there yet. No, yes. And so this is a highly debated um, topic in the Martian, the Mars polar community. So um, whoever finds more data to use essentially to disprove or prove this theory um, could probably like explain it better but so far not yet we don't know yet so if one day somebody does make that discovery what would you say the implications of that research is yeah so that would tell us that there is water uh, reservoirs uh, under like polar ice caps on mars which is quite common here on earth especially Um, And we often use Earth as a reference point, but we actually, they're very different planets. So uh, although we use it as planetary analogs, we have to remember that the dynamics of Earth and the dynamics of Mars are very different. Like the temperature is very different. The pressure is very different. Mars only has like CO2 in the atmosphere, 99%, and then the others. And then Earth has a lot of other constituents, right? So 
I think if that, if they were to discover something as big as that, um, then I think that would be really, really, really good for the Mars polar community because we can have more science studying and looking for these reflections. So we know what to look for now, but finding water on Mars is very cool and very important, but not only because of it's very cool, it's water on Mars, but has implications for astrobiology and future human um, exploration and sustainability because we always want to follow the water so that's why I'm kind of interested in the ice part, because when there's ice, there's water, but ice is really unstable on the Martian surface. It just immediately turns into gas uh, because of the pressure. So uh, it's really hard to time and find like these um, little reservoirs, if there was one under, underneath the surface, underneath the polar ice cap, because Mars um, coming from the mid latitudes from 30 degrees or 25 degrees um, north and then 35 or 25 to 30 degrees south and you keep going kind of in the mid latitudes to the polar regions that's where the ice is located um, it just it's just a matter of the thickness kind of increases as you go towards the poles but they're all kind of hidden um, sporadically and then it becomes more continuous to the poles and that's kind of what we're trying to characterize so if there's water there somewhere it will be in those first 25 degrees and then towards the poles. All right. So what does an average day of work and research look like for you? Um, for me, I, well, I'm a, I'm a grad student, so I show up in the lab <laughs> mostly every day, but you actually have a very flexible schedule. Um, I learned this earlier on in my master's that um, a good work-life balance is really important and healthy for like any grad student or any student. But now in my PhD, I'm learning to kind of time myself more. I work better um, in the morning. So if you are a morning person or uh, I don't know, a night owl, as long as it doesn't affect the way you work, as long as you get the work done, uh, that's all that really matters. So you don't have to tech, it depends also on your supervisor. Uh, but I show up in the lab because I get most of my productivity done in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I kind of do all the other legwork that I have to do or processing or like downloading stuff. Um, but yes, typically I do that in, during the weekdays, but I also teach dance. So that's why <laughs> after I do grad school and everything like that, it's a nice kind of break. Um, even though it's not a break, I'm, I teach girls and boys ages five to 18 years old. So um, it's pretty nice to train them in dance, um, but also talk to them about science and like understanding your body and also like the biology and the muscles and the bones. And but yeah, um, that's kind of what I'm doing now. Now, it's really cool that like you said the science and dancing that they have that overlap where you yeah. can use one in the other one to strengthen the other. Yes, there's actually so many parallels, um, especially when you're doing I don't know, contemporary improv or anything like that, like I will use parallels like, okay, we're going to do a gravity hold now. And this is an exercise basically where you keep a part of your, you choose a part of your body and you move across the dance floor, keeping that body in the same spot. And so there's like concepts of space and dance that like sometimes overlap. And it's really funny to me because one time also I was listening to an astronaut talk and he talked about the choreography of a spacewalk that you should be able to do the whole spacewalk with your eyes closed. And they practiced it at home in their own houses. Like this is the button, this is the finger, this is the elbow, this is where I'm putting my arm. And the fact that they do choreography, like dance has choreography, but I didn't know space 
walks had choreography like choreographed like walks to basically like fix the ISS and you have to memorize the steps um even blind so I don't know yeah that, I thought that was just really cool to me and yeah I'm still making those connections here and there um and trying to use science basically to explain art and vice versa yeah that's amazing I didn't know about the the space choreography <laughs> all right so I kind of want to shift topics a bit Sure. Yeah. So I've also read that you were awarded a doctorate scholarship for your work in this area, right? Yeah. Uh, provided by Campus France? Yes. So how did you go about getting that? Did they reach out to you or did you reach out to them? So, so essentially there's this award called uh, the Bourse Eiffel or the Eiffel Scholarship. And Canada, if grad students or undergrad students didn't know this, but Canada and France have an agreement where if there's a university in France and a university in Canada that would like to collaborate and they're eligible, the university has the capability, then you can actually do what's called a co-tutel or a co-direction. And it's basically, um, you have a co-supervisor in France and you have a co-supervisor in Toronto and you're able to do half of your PhD, half in Canada and half in France as well. Um, so I'm doing the co-direction, which is essentially just one year. Um, and I had to apply to that. I think I planned this two years in advance because I, I had to contact my co-supervisor in France and she's like a superstar and I've like always wanted to work with her. So when I worked for, when I finished my master's, I wanted to do that and kind of set this up. But then I, COVID happened and then I just kind of moved out and then like moved to Europe to work for the European Space Agency. And so that was kind of put on hold, but we had all the structure already prepared and then we just basically applied so it's an application-based process selection-based process and um, a few hundred uh, students applied I think from all over the world because it's an international program um, so Campus France I think is more like the governmental body of academia in France so you apply to them and they select you so I'm go I'll be going to France in November for six months and uh, I'll be going back for another six months in the year after as part of this program. And yeah, and it's fully funded. Um, if you're interested in like collaborating with European or French uh, specifically um, researchers, I think this is a good program to like take advantage of. It's, I'm just excited that I got accepted and I get to go. So yeah. Yeah, that does sound Sound really exciting. What do you hope to you know, really get out of it? Yeah, um, so what I'm going to do in France um, is essentially I'm going to be part of the ExoMars Cassis um, satellite planning team. So that's already a satellite that's on Mars and they're taking pictures of Mars as we speak <laughs> like every other day. Um, and basically like I will be part of that team and helping plan targets on Mars. And then I'll also be learning from their lab. Uh, their lab is the LPG or the Laboratory of Planetary Sciences and Geodynamics. So I'll be learning more on the software side, like kind of softwares that we don't have access to here at York. And then also the, some of the science that they do, I hope I can apply it to my field that I study. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping to get more of like geomorphology and understanding of mission planning on Mars uh, and then bring that experience back here at York. Okay, nice, nice. That's yeah. That sounds really exciting. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> I'll need it. 
So I, I feel like, you know, that initiative that you have in having like clear goals about what you want to get out of something is so important for you know, all engineering students to have. Yeah. Um, sometimes though, it kind of just happens. So I don't really plan too, too much. Like I kind of let things happen naturally too. Like for example, one thing that just happened to me literally just now that I didn't plan for is I've been applying to this summer school. Uh, it's called the International Summer School of Inglesiology and I've been applying to them for two years or three years. And I got rejected every single year. Um, <laughs> and five days before the actual school started, they said, we have a spot and you're next on our wait list. Do you want to come? And basically I told my supervisor and I was like, can I please do this? I've been trying to apply for three years. <laughs> Let me go. Um, so yeah, I ended up going and it was probably the most useful experience that I've had in my first year of my PhD right now, because it's a bunch of early career glaciologists and also a lot of the researchers and the professors that have like been in this field for so long. And we were just kind of immersed in like a boot camp all about ice and it was just really cool to like meet all these people and like learn from them and I'm still like processing what I learned basically because I'm using it all for my research you do have to be organized um, especially if you're planning all of these especially grant writing and um, applications you have to know what the deadlines are but the timing sometimes is just a blessing and you can't plan perfect timing <laughs> yeah kind of gotta you know roll with the punches a little bit you know roll yeah exactly yeah, I guess since you've kind of you've kind of been through the ringer, yeah, with the <laughs> undergrad, and now you're doing PhD work. I mean, you're doing things that a lot of the students, a lot of the prospective students listening, probably dream about. So, as someone who's you know been through it, like what pieces of advice would you give, you know, current students, prospective students, or even starting grad students that you wish you'd gotten when you started? Oh my gosh, yes, I love this question. Um, I thought about this because I think. I usually give like different advice, but I think for this question, I would say, don't be afraid to ask for help. Learning to ask for help is actually a very hard and humbling thing, especially for grad students who you want to own your own research, undergrad students, because you want to learn from your mistakes and like learn your own way. But I think it's really important to like lean, learn to lean and learn to trust on your colleagues and your classmates because like you won't get anywhere alone like you've technically like especially in space I'm using that as just an example like we would never be able to be able to go to the moon alone if it was just like one country cooperating or we will never be able to build the international space station if it was just like one country building it and it's always like a, a collaborative environment and it will always be a collaborative environment I would always say learn how to ask for support and ask how to ask for help even if it's embarrassing like even if it's like a stupid question there's no like what are they going to say no <laughs> so yeah I think that's my best advice if I were to give it to myself I should have asked for more help oh that's good I like that I feel like yeah. that's advice you know everybody can use yeah in life <laughs> <laughs> yeah in life so I want to shift topics just a little bit. So I want to talk about something that's you know very important to all of us here. Uh, that's equity, diversity, and inclusion. I would like to know why you think EDI is important to STEM fields. Yes, I think I kind of touched on that a little bit. Um, but you know, as a woman, as a minority, um, uh, I really think that 
equity, diversity, and inclus inclusivity is really important and accessibility as well, because we often think of each other as like different people, different researchers and like very isolated. But like I said, like if we don't come together and work together, we actually disadvantage ourselves to innovation. So like if we are building a new, I don't know, satellite, um, we're try we're, we want all of the perspectives there. We want all of the voices on the table, you know? So we like don't want to tokenize and invite specific voices on the table just because we're missing them, but we wanna already have that offer. Um, so it's already an option for everyone to join the conversation. Do you know what I mean? But I think it's really important um, especially in STEM, because STEM beforehand was a male-dominated field, a specific subjects, and it's still not systematically working for women, especially in the academic environment. I think really that without EDI, we will not be able to accomplish what we have done now. So we just need to continue with this idea with our work moving forward, always keeping in mind in the back of our heads, because we always have unconscious bias towards everyone, you know, like seeing, uh, reading your particular collaborator's name that you have not never met, you already have like some biases just based on reading that. So kind of taking that out of the equation is a little hard. York does a really good job with this, with student community, uh, being in Toronto with one of the most diverse cities um, in the world, <laughs> I think is really setting an example so we should be the example we should be what we want to see essentially but yeah we will never get anywhere alone so we need diversity and equity and it's not just with ethnic backgrounds it's also with age with gender there's many different people so we all need their perspectives and voices to be able to accomplish like something bigger than us all right uh Shamira that's all I really have for you today no, thanks for coming on here. This was this was really great. This was really fun. I learned a lot oh, more than I thought I was going to. You explained things that are completely foreign to me really well. Oh, awesome. Well, I'm glad you learned something. I also learned something from the podcast. So again, thanks for having me. It's been such a pleasure to talk about my research. If you want to know more, you can always contact me <laughs> or follow me on Twitter or something like that. All right, everybody. That was Shamira Andres. Her work and research are definitely inspiring, with interesting applications for space discovery and travel in the future. The more I hear about it, the more curious I get. Hopefully this discussion has piqued your interest as well. Until next time, thanks for listening to This is Lasong.